Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 25 to 48. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshiped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, I am only a mortal. And as he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now, may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this very hour at three o'clock, I was praying in my house when suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner by the sea. Therefore, I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. Gentiles, hear the good news. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. You know the message He sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That message spread throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John announced, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. We are witnesses to all that He did both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised Him on the third day and allowed Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Him, that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Well, Justin, thank you so much for reading our lesson and to all of you who are in person uh, with us today on this beautiful, beautiful fall day. We're grateful that you're here. And to those of you who are watching online, I know that uh, Dr. Brantley has already welcomed you, but let me say what a joy it is to be in your homes today uh, as we continue this series on the book of Acts. Uh, Before we begin, I always uh, am grateful when our youth choir is here with us. Uh, We had them a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Thomas, we're grateful for you uh, for subbing in for Mason today, and as always, to our praise team and our production team for all that you all do to help us communicate the good news of Jesus and his love literally to all the world. Before we get into the scripture, however, I have one slide that I want to share with you, and this is our newest addition to our staff. This is one of our staff babies. Yes, uh, say hello to Sophia Jeanette Slowey, uh, who was born this week to Shelby and Stephen Slowey. She is nine pounds and 12 ounces. Wow. My wife said, if you announce the weight, there'll probably be a collective in the room. And what a beautiful, beautiful child of God. And congratulations to the Slowey family and all whose life is changed by the coming of of little Sophia uh, Jeanette. Well, if you've been with us over the last two months, you know that we're in week eight of this series on the acts of the Holy Spirit. And we've been careful to call it that. This is not just the acts of the apostles. This is the acts of the Holy Spirit of God through the witnesses, through the apostles of Jesus to the world. And we've been thinking about how the Spirit empowers us as modern-day disciples to bear witness today. Last week, we talked about Acts 9, and we talked about Paul's turnabout, this persecutor of the church, who in a moment in time, in a vision that he had on the road to persecute Christians, became a preacher of Christians, a persecutor of Christ who became a preacher of Christ. And we talked about conversion last week. Now, I think it's important because of this story that we've read, Justin, that you've read, it's important to note that conversion is not just an event, although it is that. But conversion is more than an equation. It is more than an event. It is a process. Conversion is not the end of our faith. It's the very beginning of it. In fact, we have a term for after conversion. It's called sanctification. And that is the ongoing goodness and grace of God at work within us so that as we live out our faith, we become more and more and more like Jesus in the way that we live in the way that we love and in the way that we serve. It was Thomas Merton, the great Trappist monk who lived for many years in Gethsemane, Kentucky, in the monastery there, who said, we are not only converted once in our lives, but many times. And this endless series of conversions and inner revolutions leads ultimately to our transformation. If you read Acts chapters 10 and 11, it's been called historically the Gentile Pentecost. The Jewish Pentecost is in Acts 2. There's a Samaritan Pentecost where the Samaritans receive the Spirit. In Acts 8, this is the Gentile Pentecost in chapters 10 and 11. It depicts the conversion, get this, of the very first Gentile, the very first non-Jew 
is in this story. But there is also another conversion that we often miss in this story, and that's a conversion in the first apostle whose name is Peter. In Peter, this past, the Holy Spirit enables Peter to revise his witness in a way that becomes much more wide-ranging than it was before this story, as we'll see in the text, to the text. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. It's interesting how Luke specifies where he's from. He's of the Italian cohort, which means he's from Italy. He's a Roman citizen. A cohort is a unit of soldiers numbering 600. A centurion was a non-commissioned officer, not unlike an army captain today, who was responsible for 100 troops, 100 soldiers, or one-sixth of a cohort. His responsibilities were much like a modern army captain. Centurions in the Roman world were the backbone of the Roman militia. In fact, I discovered this week in the historian, the Greek historian Polybius, he sums up the necessary qualifications for a centurion. Here it is. Centurions are to be good leaders of steady and prudent mind, not prone to take the offensive or to initiate violence or conflict, but able when hard-pressed to stand fast and, if necessary, to die at their post. So these are not Marines. These are not Navy SEALs here, but these are steady eddies in the Roman militia centurions. Luke tells us that he was stationed at a place called Caesarea. Some of us have been to Caesarea. This is not Caesarea Philippi. That's in northern Galilee. But this is called Caesarea Maritima. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem. In fact, in the first century, it was the Roman capital of Judea and was also the home of the governor whose name, I think you'll remember, was Pontius Pilate. It was a city that was built and completed in 22 BC by Herod the Great, who, by the way, also erected the temple in Jerusalem. Caesarea Maritima became an urban center with a beautiful harbor and an aqueduct that ran six miles all the way from Mount Carmel that channeled water from the springs at the base of Mount Carmel. Cornelius is described, if you go back to Acts 10:2, in this way. Luke says he was a devout man who feared God. To say that he feared God meant that he worshiped God regularly, that he worshiped God with all his household. And also, Luke adds, he gave alms. In other words, he was generous in his gifts and he prayed all the time. He was not a proselyte in that he had not been circumcised, so you can't call him Jewish at this point. He is a Gentile, but he was attracted to monotheism. He was unlike others in the Greco-Roman world. He wasn't interested in polytheism. He didn't worship many gods. He was attracted by one God, and he was also attracted by the ethical standards of the synagogue and of the temple. He was a reputable man in his neighborhood and the Jewish people loved him. One day, Cornelius, this Gentile centurion, had a vision. 
It's interesting to me that Luke notes the time. What time was the vision? It was three o'clock in the afternoon. What difference does that make? That's the Jewish time of prayer. In the ninth hour, three o'clock, good Jews pray. Three o'clock in the afternoon, he's praying, and an angel appears to this soldier. He calls him by name. Cornelius, your prayers have been answered. Your alms have been a memorial, a blessing to God. And then he gives him this instruction. Now, I want you to send men to Joppa for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter, for he's lodging there with a man whose name is also Simon, who is, listen to this, a tanner. Underscore the word tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, let me explain. Joppa is also on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's 30 miles south of Caesarea, so it's a good walk. It'll take you a day to walk it. Now, I've got to say, in this passage, it seems strange to me that Peter, a Jew, would be bunking with a tanner. A tanner is a taxidermist who handles the skins of dead animals And Numbers, chapter 19, describes such people as permanently unclean. This is not a good place for a Jewish man to be living. And so that ought to get your attention at first. This is weird. This is peculiar. But the angel says clearly, Cornelius, tell your servants to follow their nose to Joppa. And when the air gets really stinky, take the first right. And so off they go. As they're nearing Joppa, watch this, Peter is praying up on the roof, and Luke notes the time. What time is it? It's 12 noon. Also, one of the Jewish times for prayer. It's lunchtime, and Peter probably is past hungry. He's hangry at this point. And verse 10 says he falls into a trance. Now, notice that the word trance in the Greek is ecstasis. It means a displacement of the mind. So it happens sometimes in our sleeping, in our dreaming, that the mind is relaxed and and the subconscious comes to being. And all of a sudden, he has this vision. And it's really strange. He envisions a big sheet that's lowered from the sky by four corners. I, I think it's a picnic basket It's a blanket, and in that sheet, all kinds of four-footed creatures, reptiles and birds and probably pigs are in it, and a voice says, come and get it, kill and eat. And Peter, being a good Jew, objects. No way, Lord, for I have never, I've never eaten anything profane or unclean or unkosher. Peter knew the Torah. He knew the holiness code. It's in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, the dietary regulations for the holiness of the Hebrew people. He knew it. And yet God responds in a rather odd manner, do not call anything that I have made unclean. I just want to stop it right there because I'm really struggling at this point because it sounds like a contradiction. What about the Mosaic law? What about the Torah? The scripture says no. But this vision happens three 
times. And whenever something happens three times, you know the Lord is speaking. And the scripture says that Peter was greatly puzzled. In other words, he was at a loss. He was perplexed. He didn't know what to make of it. Now, about that time of the dream, there's a knock at the door, and these three Gentiles who have been sent by this Roman soldier from Caesarea are asking for Peter. And notice what the Scripture says. And Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, (laughs) invites them in. What's he doing? He's extending hospitality. And when you befriend others, strangers in particular, you may be entertaining angels unaware, or at least that's what Hebrews 13, 2 says. But the whole scene, it's so unkosher. It's so unorthodox. You've got a Jew and three Gentiles rooming in a tanner's house. And it reeks of unclean. All I can think is, I just hope nobody tells the rabbi at First Church Joppa what's happening at the tanner's house. This is scandalous. It's unbelievable. They tell Peter about Cornelius' dream. And the very next day, led by the Spirit, Peter and these three Gentiles, along with six circumcised folks, what's that mean? From the synagogue, Jews, caravan 30 miles to Caesarea. And watch this. When they pull in the driveway, the chariots are bumper to bumper, and the camel lot is full. Cornelius apparently has invited his extended family and friends, hoping that Peter will show up so that they can hear what he has to say. And when Peter enters, I love this, Cornelius, what does he do? (laughs) He falls on his knees. He does obedience to Peter. That's ironic, isn't it, a Roman soldier? who's enforcing the occupation in Judea, is now bowing down before one of the occupants. There's something weird about this. And Peter, who doesn't need any accolades, says, please, please, get up. I put on my robe the same way you put on your robe. My feet are clay, just like yours. And he stands up, and Cornelius explains his epiphany, his vision, to Peter. And then Peter does something that I think is really, really gutsy. He names the elephant in the room. He says, you all know, well, y'all know, is what he said in good Southern Aramaic. Y'all know that it is completely unlawful for a Jew like me to be in a Gentile place like this. But God has shown me today that I should not call anyone unclean or profane. What's happening? At this point, Peter is deciphering his own vision. And he realizes that what happened on that roof at noon was not just about food, it was about people. And then extemporaneously he said, now I understand, I get it. God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. What's happening? Conversion is happening again to Peter. He's revising his own witness. 
because of the Holy Spirit. And then he starts to preach. I love this. You know the good news of how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. You know about how Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And we are all witnesses of this. They put him to death. He's just telling the gospel. They put him to death. They hung him on a cross, but God raised him up on the third day. And he is Lord, watch this, of all. And he has sent me to tell you that anyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness and new life. There are two important words in Peter's preaching of the gospel, anyone and all. And here's what, here's what really gets me. Peter got right in the middle of his sermon. He never finished it because while he was preaching, the spirit fell on the house and the people started extolling and praising God and speaking in tongues. And the circumcised people who had come with Peter were shocked. And one of them said, what do we do now? And Peter said, anybody got any water? And this is the revised chapel version. Mrs. Cornelius went and got her china bowl and filled it full of water. And Peter baptized the whole lot. Babies and all, servants and all, the whole household. And of course, the next day, this is in Acts 11, Peter was called on the carpet by Jerusalem. They had a little come to Jesus with Peter. They criticized him because he had been the guest of a Gentile and eaten at the same table and baptized them. And they raised the question, why did you go to uncircumcised people and eat with them? In other words, Peter, you broke the law. And Peter said, it wasn't my idea. I didn't even want to go. <laughs> In fact, I tried to tell them at Cornelius' house, this is not fitting. It's not right. But there was a vision and there was a voice. And when I started preaching to them about Jesus, the Spirit showed up. And it occurred to me, this is Peter's words, that if God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, then who am I to hinder God? Hmm. When I read the Gentile Pentecost, I realized that Cornelius wasn't the only one who was converted that day. <laughs> Peter was converted too. Have you ever stopped to look in the scripture to find out how many conversions the apostle Peter had? <laughs> I mean, there were many. How about on day one at the nets by the Sea of Galilee when Jesus said, come and follow me? How about on the hillside when Jesus had been praying all night and he said, Peter, I want you to be one of the 12 one of my core leaders, lead team. How about at Caesarea Philippi when Peter became the first to confess, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. How about on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter was there when he saw Jesus with Elijah and Moses, the, the, the trinity of the Bible. How about after the resurrection, after Peter's great failure and Jesus chased him down fishing at the Sea of Galilee and said, do you love me? 
then feed my sheep. Over and over and over these conversions, what's happening? What's happening is Peter was already in Christ. That's conversion, that's redemption. But now Christ is in Peter. And that's sanctification. Cornelius wasn't the only one converted. Peter was converted of what? Of his own prejudice. Peter was converted of what? Of his own partiality. Of his own distinguishing between, of his own discrimination. There are many conversions. You remember how Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom after his confession? This is in Matthew 16. He gave him the keys of the kingdom. Well, now Peter is using the keys not to lock anybody out, but to let them in. And it's really shameful almost because now you've got soldiers who've got blood on their hands. You've got tanners who are unclean. You've got Samaritans. You've got Ethiopians. You've got Gentiles. You've got unorthodox, unkosher because the Spirit said anyone who believes and all who believe. You know, when you stop to think about it, I think Peter could have proof texted his way right out of that house and felt pretty righteous about it. But he had a vision and he heard a voice and the Holy Spirit empowered him to improvise, to revision, and that same spirit is still moving this morning, revising our mission, ridding me of my parochialism, of my tribalism, of my nationalism, of my denominationalism, of my racism, of my sexism, and any ism that we face or any distinction by which we divide what God has created. And we discover in no uncertain terms that God doesn't play favorites, and neither will we. When I was in Atlanta, I took a confirmation class to see the high priest at the Ahavith Akim, which was the Jewish temple. And one of our counselors, one of our parents, asked a really, really good question of the high priest. I was almost a little embarrassed, but I thought it was such a great question. He said to the high priest, does the fact that you, you and your people are chosen make you more special than us? And he said, no, it makes us more responsible. And I thought, that, that's really true of the church, isn't it? It's not that we're more special or more privileged than others, but we are more responsible to others. It was Dr. King who said, life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? And according to the scripture, we don't get to choose who the others are. <laughs> Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I don't get to choose my neighbor. Well, what about the aggravating person that lives next door? Neighbor. 
What about the person in my office who politically is so, neighbor? What about the person across the street that I could care, neighbor? Most persistent question, what am I doing for others? And I have to tell you, when I read read the scripture, here's the best news to me. Isn't it wonderful that you don't have to be squeaky clean for God to hear your prayer? Isn't it wonderful that you don't have to be perfect to be given a vision by God for God to speak into your heart? But we do have to be attentive to his voice and his vision. And when you are, the Spirit of God enables you to improvise and revision so that you can use your keys to open the door to somebody else. That's our mission. Let me give you one example and I'm finished. When I was in seminary in Atlanta in the early to mid 80s, Dr. Fred Craddock was our professor, he's from Humboldt, Tennessee, West Tennessee. He used to tell us about going back to a community that he had served in younger days. He'd been a pastor before he became a professor of preaching. And he said, my wife and I went back to this little area that we once served and we remembered how difficult it was. We were in our 20s there, late 20s, and it was a hard time. It was a small church and we had a difficult time. Little church on the edge of a growing city and people were moving there from different places. And they were coming from all over, different backgrounds, races, ethnic groups. And the little church that we were serving by and large was really struggling with that. And they weren't necessarily very accepting of their new neighbors. And so he said, years later, it hasn't been that long, but years later, Fred, uh, he, he and his wife drove back to that community just to look it over and see what had happened since they'd been gone for 30 years and they noticed that that little church had closed. But it was still functioning, but now it was a restaurant and it had a neon light out in front of it. It was kind of a barbecue juke joint. And he said, we pulled off and went in to have a look and decided to to eat a bite. And we sat at our table and just kind of eavesdropped and we couldn't help but notice that the people in the room were from all over different colors, different clothing, different languages. And Fred said, I leaned over to my wife after we prayed and I said, you know, it's a good thing this isn't a church anymore. Otherwise, not all these people would be welcome. Hmm. Well, that can be true, but thanks be to God, it's not true in this house. We got lots of folks here. Some of you are a little strange. Some of you from other places, some of you don't speak proper Southern grammar the way y'all ought to, but we've got lots of room in this house. And we have a key. And the purpose of the key, who is Jesus, is not to lock anyone out, but to open up. And when we do, the Spirit shows up. And that's our mission. That's our purpose. We are empowered by the Spirit to improvise and revision in a way that opens doors to neighbors, to others, to the glory of God. May it be so. In Jesus' name.
Amen.